Yeah, you want to do guided meditation? I'm sh- I'm up for a little guided meditation. Uh, Would you like me to guide you? Here we go. You're on a deep, dark beach. Adrian, you're sitting alone on an island. <laughs> you're alone because everyone is gone from you from your life. <laughs> oh, man. It means all the frustration and all the the problems of owning a new home are no longer with you. I know. I shouldn't have bought this fucking house. But, unfortunately, the island needs a hug. Wait a second. But, unfortunately? <laughs> I know. It's the worst guided meditation anyone's ever done. But, but unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, that's something you just don't want to hear when someone is, is trying to... You've lost everything. Yeah. But, unfortunately... Everything is great except for that gushing stab wound in your leg. <laughs> when you said gushing, I was like, oh, uh, oh. <laughs> you were really hoping it was going another way. I you will have was. multiple orgasms on an island alone for the rest of your life. <laughs> I like this island. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Doing It with Will Conlon. I am Will Conlon. This is episode six. There at the top, you heard a clip from my interviewee today, Adrian Ellis. Very, very funny man. Very interesting man. He's a multi-instrumentalist. I'll get into more about him later. I uh, I wanted to share some news. Um, it's It's nothing like major, major, not yet. But a couple of good things happened, and, and I haven't had a chance to really talk about good things that have happened on the show. Everything sort of seems like, oh no, life is terrible. Um, and I don't want it to come across that way, so I need to share when good stuff happens too. So something interesting happened where I actually heard from a casting director who wanted me to audition for a show, and it wasn't even really an audition. She just said, they already want you, that you've auditioned for them before. They need you know something to show their producers, so put something on tape send it to me, just a minute long, and uh, here you go. So I did that. I can't say any details about the show. Don't worry. It's it's not like a, a major, major production or anything like that. I'm not moving over to the world of television in uh, in a series lead or anything like that just yet. But it was something. And, and for a guy who hasn't had any acting gigs, any paid acting gigs in over a year and is without an agent at the moment to just hear randomly from a casting director who says, I want to put you in this. You'd be great. And then I got it. And it was, it's, it's great. We start shooting next week and it's uh, it's a principal role. It's just an episode of something. And like I say, it's a small thing. It's, it's nothing too, too major, but it's a big thing to me, especially given all the stuff that's kind of just been, been progressively frustrating me. So it's nice to have that, that little bit of accomplishment and nice to know, you know, that, hey, someone who saw me before wants to put me in something. And that's that's a good feeling. And then I just got off the phone with uh, a gentleman that I've been talking to about. I, uh, I, I've i been writing some, some material. I've been working on a couple of uh, ideas for, you know, feature films, television shows and things like that. And I sent one to this gentleman uh, and he loved it. And And the funny thing is I sent it to him a few weeks ago. And, you know, it's amazing. It's amazing how I can get right down. Oh, I guess, you know, he didn't like it. He wasn't interested. And that's right where I go. You know, not, oh, he could be busy or anything like that. 
It, I go right to the negative. I go right to the, the, the darker stuff. And no, it turns out that's exactly what it was. He was just busy. And he finally got a chance to read it. And he said he loved it. He absolutely loved it. And he had really nice things to say about it. Really nice things to say about my writing, which is even harder for me to hear because I, I'm so insecure about everything that I do. And it's not that I need people to tell me how good I am or anything like that. I just, you know, wish I could get to a point where I can just be happy with what I do. Not to the point where I don't want to learn and evolve, but it'd be nice to just be happy with what I do. And you know what? Today I am. And I, I, I don't care if it's because people are telling me that I'm good at something or, or what, but it's, it's nice to hear. And anyway, so what's the point to all this? Basically, the stuff that you were working on pays off. It all comes back. You know, so what? I haven't acted in a year. I auditioned for these guys well over a year ago. And they liked me then, and they liked me enough now just to say, just put, them on, put it on tape, we're going to put them in. I send something to this guy to read. He loves it. And he's got contacts all over the place that can do something with the material I've written. And I'm just really excited. Something may not come out of it. Who knows? But it's exciting to hear that you've got a chance, right? You've got opportunity. And that's what we want, right? That's what we work towards. You know, I, I guess I need to remind myself that even if things get a little dark, a little bleak, a little dry, doesn't mean that things aren't going to work out later. Just keep going for it. Keep pushing it out. Keep creating content. Keep working on your craft. Uh, keep doing it. Uh, it was shameless. That was awful. You know what? You just keep going and, 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 and somebody's going to do something. Something's going to happen. And I know a lot of people that, that have learned this lesson and I admire them greatly. And I know a lot of really cool artists that are, are stuck kind of in that dry zone right now where not much is happening. And, and so that's what I'm telling you right now. Stick with it because something's going to happen for sure. It can't not. You just keep going. Something's going to happen. Might be small, might be big. Who knows? Just keep going. And then when something breaks, you know, you can give yourself a bit of a pat on the back because you've, you've, you've pushed yourself and you stuck with it. And that takes balls and good for you for doing that and good for me you know I don't like to say that often I even just got a chill saying that good for me <laughs> but but you know I'm happy I'm not bloating I'm just happy it's a good day and you know what else makes it a great day is I get to share with you a conversation with a gentleman that I've known for a while now he's a multi-instrumentalist as I said earlier he's a music composer he's a music producer he's also done a bit of acting he's done some writing he's done uh, he's a little bit of fight choreography you'll find out during the conversation but primarily he's just a brilliant composer and the theme you hear at the top of the show was created by this man adrian ellis he's a really good friend he's really sharp he's incredibly intelligent i'm really glad i know him and i'm really glad i got to sit down and talk with him and i'm gonna let you revel in the wonder that is Adrian Ellis right now. So enjoy that interview and I'll talk to you after. How you doing? I'm good, man. Yeah? What's what's life been like lately? Uh transitional. Yeah? Yeah. You just moved to Hamilton. I just moved to Hamilton. So it's a new city. It's uh getting used to um not being in the hustle and bustle of Toronto anymore. Mm -hmm. There that's where all the work is, right? So to be away from that you know it's I, I haven't really felt it like i haven't been like oh this is this is going to be a problem but 
it's really just I miss it and I miss being close to my friends. But other than that, well, that's uh, the toughest been, part too, yeah. especially because you were you were in Toronto for how long? How many years? Fifteen years. Fifteen years. Yeah. And then to move, I mean, you're about an hour. It's about an hour. It's about outside an hour. of yeah. Toronto. Yeah. It really, I mean, by by all uh, accounts, it's not really substantial. Yeah. So do you get back often then? Oh yeah. Yeah, you have to, right? Way more than I thought. Yeah, it's been a lot of travel. Really? Yeah. Like how often do you like have to go two back? Two or three times a week. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I remember you saying you thought it might be about once a week. Or like that would go weeks without going in. Yeah. Yeah. What have you been working on? Uh, recently, I've been working on this feature film. It's a documentary called, well, it's a work in title, but Bocator. And it's about an Asian martial art called Bocator, which is from Cambodia. Mm-hmm. And it's about... Um, a master who is trying to revive the art uh obviously uh cambodia has a very dark history with the killing fields and uh, the khmer rouge wow it was basically cultural suppression and cultural erasure of uh of people they wanted to basically get away or uh, get rid of all the leaders of any kind of cultural like arts or martial arts or anything people that wow had ideas and could lead people to change or whatever so it's a really interesting story about this guy's uh, struggle to basically revive this ancient martial art that's been... I mean, if you go to the temple at Angkor Wat in Cambodia, it's there are inscriptions, like carved inscriptions, showing the original animal-based techniques of this style. So really? it's got this direct lineage. It goes back, you know, millennia. It's amazing. And um, yeah, so it's been a really interesting long journey with this director. I've, been, I've known him for 10 years. And uh, he's been working on Bokata for about, well, since 2009, going oh back and forth God. to Cambodia. In Six between. years. Yeah, it's been a very long process. Like, That's a passion project for sure. Yeah. Documentary filmmakers, I find, are always in these long pro- pro- projects. Do you find they're a different animal than just uh, feature filmmakers? Uh, I think are... they are in the sense, I mean, there are lots, lots of filmmakers that do both. But I think you have a different mindset when you do a documentary to a certain degree. You've worked in just about every medium there is. You've done everything from web series, feature films, documentaries, television, sports everything. Television. Sports television, <laughs> which is, I like how you laugh at it. Like, well, I mean, I'm sitting there during the CFL mix sessions and people are asking me questions about sports. I'm like, mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I just do the music. Yeah, I just do the music, I really seriously. Don't know. <laughs> so what do you find is the main difference musically when you have to create a score for a documentary versus a feature film uh it's about the sensitivity to the subject right so in a documentary you're dealing with real people and real situations Mm -hmm. so for instance in cambodia i mean the stories are just beyond heartbreaking i mean it's like people that woke up and they had their family members to be dragged away in early hours of the morning or people be riding on friends just to survive and keep their family alive and I mean just horrible horrible things so when you're then tasked to create music for that there's a real responsibility to walk a very fine line between helping tell the story and giving a uh, an appropriate emotional context for what's going on sure and helping the viewer connect with the subject matter and not pandering or not going overboard and falling into melodrama or um, being manipulative right because you want people to make their own minds up about you know what what they think mm-hmm. I mean art is subjective right so you're always telling well, for sure but when you're doing something like this it's extremely heavy material yeah you like you want to remove yourself emotionally from it or or is it better to be more emotionally engaged creatively 
That's a good question. I don't know. Well, I've, never, you. I've never, I've <laughs> never, you're good at this. <laughs> I've never been in a situation where I felt like, um, I was out of control emotionally where I like what I felt about the subject was impeding my ability to, to see it objectively and write something I felt that worked. Mm -hmm. It's really weird. Like when you have conversations with film, with documentary filmmakers, they use words like the character that then really, yeah, it's, it's really weird. They, they have, they, they kind of walk almost like a dualistic line where they both see the, the, the subjects of their film as characters in a movie that they're writing uh -huh. and they really are directing it. They're like, well, I need to get a shot of this so that you that you feel like this tension between the two characters. And it's like, that's not a moment that ever happened. So like they might use the yeah. subject was not responding to a specific question. They weren't even really thinking about anything. They were just in that moment where in a pause between a take and the camera was still running and they just sort of looked to the side and probably thought about their grocery list or something. Right. But there was something about the way they looked at that moment. And the filmmaker goes, that's it. That's that emotional moment I need. And they would place it underneath, like, say, for instance, a voiceover of the, of the subject saying something oh, wow. completely different. Yeah. So then you have a voiceover and then a removal. And it's almost like, and then obviously the connection is he's, the person is now thinking about that thing they just said. But they're not. It's artifice. It's completely created out of nothing. How do you feel about that? Does it uh, make you feel like dupe almost? It's weird. I, I I don't know. I'm not. I'm not really sure. <laughs> it's a strange sensation because you're telling me this, and I'm I'm thinking back to documentaries that I've seen over the years. I've yeah. seen a lot. Yeah. And I've wondered how many of 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 those documentaries were all sort of. of them. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. I feel a lot better. <laughs> well, it's the truth though, because I mean, if you were to say go out to take two filmmakers and say go out to Hamilton, mm -hmm. and I want you number one to show first filmmaker to show me Hamilton is beautiful. And I want the second person to show me Hamilton is ugly. And they will both come back with completely successful projects that demonstrate those two things are very much true. But all you're doing as a filmmaker or really what you're doing is you're, as a creator is you're deciding what not to show people. Well, yeah, it's a matter of perspective, right? It's a matter of perspective. So if you're saying, I believe this person is inherently good, your own bias towards that will lead you to create things that show them in that light. Coney 2012. <laughs> right Sorry. exactly right so it's is and this... i mean i think that responsible journalism or responsible documentary filmmaking is about filmmakers who are self-aware enough to understand when they're doing that and try and balance out as much as possible i find it as a challenge doing a podcast that i i claim to be as honest and real as possible right. i have trouble when i'm editing these interviews because I, I, I will find myself saying, no, I need to leave that in where I go, uh, or I sound sort of dumb so that people can still feel like there's authenticity to it. Right. But then when I have that thought, I'm like, okay, but are you just trying to convince people there's authenticity or are you saying it is authentic? Which one is it that you want? And then I just have to go, okay, I can't talk about this. I have too much to do right now. Exactly. Yeah, it becomes and, overwhelming. Yeah, it does. And it's, it's. I think authenticity is a huge question of, in filmmaking. Mm. Uh, and it's something that is always, especially for documentaries, like in this, this one, I'm like, I'm not Cambodian and I don't play any Cambodian instruments. And so, I mean, I, a lot of people, when they approach these things are like, well, we have to give a, a sense of setting. So if you're, if you're setting your film in China, then you write Chinese sounding music or whatever. But then I, my opinion is always, well, hire a Chinese composer and they might not write Chinese music. They might write modern Chinese music, right? Like if you're living in Germany today, 
and someone says, can you write me some German music? They'll probably make you a techno song. They're not going to make you, they're not going to write Bach. Right. That's almost the way that we look at these things in other cultures. It's the, this weird cultural appropriation. Which there was another strange. project you you were working on recently that you told me about where you had to compose basically a jazz score. Yes. And you, I remember you saying very similar things about that is what you're saying about the Cambodia project, which is I don't play jazz. Mm-hmm. I don't know much about the jazz world. Yeah. Jazz is just a style and it's American style. I'm basically American. So it's just something I'm not familiar with. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and then you also have to ask yourself, can I do an excellent job? And then you have to ask yourself, the third question would be for me is, does traditional Cambodian music, can it do what I need it to do in this score? Mm-hmm. And it just, it's a rabbit hole. It's a rabbit hole. The, I, the, the jazz project is an interesting thing though, for me, because it goes, it goes towards something that I was able to do something there that I don't think I'm really able to nail in any of my other projects. And that is this axiom, which I first learned from my friend Ron Korb, who's a flute player, really amazing flute player, has uh, got massive success as a solo artist. And he, he's, he shared this with me originally. It was the, it's a Bill, uh, Quincy Jones axiom, which is the success of a producer, right? It's basically one rule, hire the right people. Mm-hmm. That's the whole thing. It's basically like you have to get the best team. And when you can do that, you can give a, the best team a mediocre idea. They'll get a new idea. They'll throw it. They'll, they'll fix it. Or they'll just go somewhere else that you never expected. But if you give a mediocre team a great idea, they still can screw it up. <laughs> so with this jazz score, what happened was I just, it was largely luck. I mean, I really just lucked into it. But when I knew I had the team together, I'm like, this is the dream team. How do you put a team together? <laughs> I think it's, I really feel like it's lifelines. Like it's, I'm always calling people and going, what the fuck do I do now? Like I'm, so the other part of that jazz score is I took it on because it scared the shit out of me. And I knew that every time I take on projects where I'm out of my depth and I'm frightened to death that I'm going to fail and completely land on my face, then I learn quicker than I will doing anything yeah. else. Yep. Because I'm like, I can't. I can't fail. I'm, I've got too much writing on this. I can't disappoint my friend who's counting on me to make this happen. And you just figure it out. But with, uh, with the teams, I basically just started calling people I knew and saying, I need to put a jazz ensemble together. Do you know anybody who's good? So I was basically, and it's so with so many things like recommendations for good music or like what's an artist I should listen to or what's a book I should be reading about this or, I mean, you, if you have a brain trust of people that are smarter than you or that have access to things you don't have access to, <clears throat> just go out and ask. That's, that's my thing. I have no shame about that. Like, I'm like, I don't know this. I don't know the answer to this question. Is that how, how you decide whether or not you need a team or if you can do this on your own is based on how much you know about it or just basically how expansive the project is? Both. Both? Yeah. Okay. So how often would you say you work with a team versus alone? I mostly work alone. Mostly work yeah. alone. Which is not something I, I like. I, I'd rather, I would rather work with people on a regular basis. Really? Yeah, absolutely. And why is that? Um, I mean, the job, of, the, the job that I do now has changed so much in the last 20 years, say. It used to be that the various things that I now do on a regular basis would be done by experts in that very field. You'd have an engineer who mixes your music and makes it sound amazing. You'd have, uh, you'd have arrangers who arrange your music, orchestrators who orchestrate, copyists who copy the music. Uh, you'd have all these different players who do incredibly f- um, jobs which are, you know, a subject in like a master's degree in, a, in and of themselves, right? 
So when you work that way, I mean, you could take everything to a large, to a very good place. And I, I love being in control of everything. It is that part of me that loves to do everything myself and to look at the project and go, hey, I did this all myself. Mm -hmm. But as I go on, I really see that I want to be able to focus in on doing one thing really, really well and to be able to hire amazing people to do other things. And then there's also the opportunity for surprise, right? Like I, I rarely surprise myself. Like sometimes really? it happens, but most of the time... I mean, I get, I don't know, is that really fair to say? I, let's put it this way. I, I, you find more surprises working with people because they'll do things you'd never think of doing. And you're like, oh, let's incorporate that. Or they'll give you an idea where you're like, yeah, that is a good solution to this problem. Well, because you said a few minutes ago that you love to take on projects that frighten you yeah. and make you feel like you're going to fail. Yeah. I would think when you do that, that situation is just full of surprising yourself because you're able to pull it off. Have you ever had one of those projects that, that you've chosen I'm afraid I'm going to fail. And you did? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. And how did you deal with that? <laughs> you uh, still are. It was, <laughs> it was very traumatic. It was yeah. very traumatic. I was called in. Um, it was shortly after I completed my tenure with my mentor, Donald Kwan, uh, which was an amazing uh, experience and just blew the doors. Like, I, there are three things in my life that are, like, really the big things. And that was one of them where I'm like, this changed me. Mm. Anyway, so... But Donald was, Donald's kind of a crazy guy and he would like just, he would rope you into things or just throw, throw you in the deep end. Like I felt like when I met him, he was like, okay, great, everything, like let's do this. And then he's like, why are you hanging out at that side of the pool? Come over here. And he sort of took me to the deep end just went, and pushed me in. And without water wings, without any kind of notice that it was going to happen. And I spent the next six weeks like just up to over my nose, like just coming up gasping for every once in a while, feeling like uh, I wanted to quit like on a regular basis. So at the end of that, he had a he had a gig where he was writing some music for this show. And uh, he called me up one night and he said, I need, I've got my bass player fell through. And he knew I played bass. Like I play guitar, I play bass. I play a lot, play a lot of different instruments. And he said, I just need someone to sit in uh, on this gig. And we're going to sit down and jam out some tunes that I've sort of, you know, worked out. And it's going to be more like an improvised kind of blah, 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 whatever he explained it. And I said, great, that sounds amazing. Let's do this. And I was a little bit nervous because he had some other really big session players come in, like the guys that Ron Corb was there, for instance, and some other really big guys like heavyweights in the, in the recording business. And I'm not a studio musician. I'm not used to coming in and flying in as a higher gun on that side. Mm -hmm. So I got there and Donald had sort of miscast me quite severely because he had charts written uh, and expected me to sight read these things. And I'm not. First of all, I don't sight read well. And I definitely don't sight read well in the bass clef. Like I can read the treble clef pretty well, which is like the higher level, which is where all guitar music is written. So as a guitar player, I can read that pretty well. But bass, I'm not used to reading that like and being able to pull that off because I never studied piano that much. I can't even describe to you the absolute abject terror I felt. Like it was just the worst vomity kind of like, I, I literally, I don't think I've ever in my life wanted to physically run away from a situation. So why didn't you? uh shame like i just didn't i couldn't bear like i've been i was i've been brought up in a way that says you just never quit your parents musicians yeah yeah my father's a musician my mother studied they're both performance musicians my mother went into different uh into different work so anyways i mean how did that whole thing turn out i mean i it was a, it was a complete disaster to be fair uh but the amazing thing was and this is something i go back to and the reason why i take on the jazz gig is that as things went on there was this weird moment where you know like Donald would say okay let's try this first cue and I figured maybe we'll go through it and he'll play me the cue I'll be able to hear it and I'll get the gist of what he's trying to go to and I can improvise it because I can do that no problem mm -hmm. 
But no, it was like one, two, three, four, and you're in. And now the bass, the other thing about the bass, you have to be absolutely exact. Everyone else can noodle and just sort of be generally in the right place. And of course, they're amazing at that. But I had to be Bang on. the rock solid guy. I'm, the, I'm telling you guys what the chord is. I'm telling you where we are in the music. I'm telling you what wow. the context of this particular section is. Without me, it's a freeform floating thing. You don't really know whether it's lift or a fall or whatever. So it was just, it was a crash and burn. I just, I remember feeling worse and worse and just sort of almost like going into this weirdly, like a, like a, not meditative, it was like shock. I was in total shock. And it was like I was kind of receding into myself and just pretending like I wasn't there. But then there was this weird mental switch that happened where all of a sudden my brain, I think it was just a subconscious thing where my brain says, well, you've now hit rock bottom. There's nothing, <laughs> there's literally nothing that could be worse than this. So yeah. since all of the worst things have already happened, there's no more risk. So all the fear that blocks you from doing the things you're able to do was gone because I no longer had anything to lose. Yeah. So I started suddenly being able to read in the bass clef and sight read at a competency level that was probably about i would say roughly 300 percent better than what i was able to do like 18 seconds before that wow it was suddenly like i was able to follow the music and know what the notes were and kind of get it and be in the right place and it was nowhere near good and acceptable but it was 300 percent better than what i was able to do before Really? Yeah. My brain just went click and says, you're going to, you're going to do this. You've seen enough of the notes, you know, subconsciously what they are. You know where the notes are on the bass. You can do this. And I started doing it. That's amazing how you, you have that in you that it can just kick in instead of just getting so paranoid and scared that you crumble and, and slip into like a panic attack or something like that and yeah. just kind of slump away yeah. and run out of the room you know, screaming. Instead, it you just go into overdrive. So imagine if is I had... Is that common for you? Where, where you, you feel that, that sort of like pressure in the moment that... Is that common that that's how you'll respond to it? It is now because I know to trust that. Yeah? Yeah. You didn't trust it before. I didn't know it could happen. Really? Yeah, no idea. I mean, you hear those things. You know, they say, oh, the potential of the human mind and what you could do if you didn't have fear and all this stuff. But you that swallowed was, the pill. I swallowed the pill, dude. I really did. No, it was true. And that... I mean, so many things and compounded with other experiences I've had and just the idea of like, like what your brain can come up with in your, when you're dreaming. Like you just go, you know what, what I think is possible. If I had to sum up my time with John Donald, mm -hmm. it was what I thought was possible wasn't even close to what's actually possible in any, in any regard. My own potential, my ability to be creative, to be successful, to earn money, to, to be, to walk in the circles that I wouldn't dream of walking in. And it's a constant thing. We have to remind yourself that that exists. But well, it's amazing because that, that's exactly I think at the core of most uh, creative people in general is that is that constant questioning: Why am I here? I don't have right. anything to give. I don't deserve to yeah. be where I am. Yeah. And and it's amazing when I hear people, no matter where they are on the scale of success, they seem to always still have that creep in somewhere. Yeah. You know, like it it doesn't matter. You often say you're at the beginning of your career but you've been at this uh what 10 years really uh, i mean if you want to say when did i decide and really focus on doing this as my career yeah about 10 years about 10 years it took seven years before i was able to do it on a full-time like nothing but this kind of paid yeah my original vision for for what i wanted to do as a vocation was to be an illustrator 
Oh, really? I was drawing all the time. That's what I did. As, as, and anyone that knew me from the ages of like, I don't know, five to, to 14 would say, like, Adrian's an artist. That's mm-hmm. what he does. That's his whole thing. He he's draws and paints. Huh. And, uh, yeah, if, you know, in high school, I was like, what, I need to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. Uh, I like but, how you did that. As a, you imagine yourself as Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> what am I going to do? do with my life? <laughs> Andrew, uh, what no, am I going to be do? an artist or be a composer? <laughs> Maybe, uh... <laughs> it was exactly like that. Yeah. And I knew I got weird looks at the time and I never understood it. <laughs> I'm an artist. <laughs> yeah, so I, was, uh, I went to school for post post I wanted to go into graphic design at the time. And this is like late 90s, mm-hmm. which is sort of like graphic design was kind of a thing back then. It doesn't really exist in the same way anymore. Uh, which wasn't really illustration, and I ended up in the art, fine art program. So I did that. Uh, but at the time, I was still always sort of playing music. From about the age of a little 12, when I first got into music, like thinking, oh, I like, I like this as an idea, and started playing guitar. Is that because your parents were musicians? No, it, it was, or was a legit. Oh, I interest. resisted it. They, my father tried to teach me violin. My mom tried to teach me piano. I didn't want anything to do with it. Like I was a very lonery type kid who would spend hours and hours and hours in my bedroom alone either acting out scenes or pretending I was something yep. or drawing or, or creating something yep. so then but you don't remember a time when that sort of switched over to when it switched over to music oh yeah, yeah. sure I mean it didn't really switch over uh, it was more like I got interested in music uh, I think it was probably through my big brother like I had a big sisters and big brothers of Canada kind of big brother mm-hmm and he sort of was always sharing music with me and like saying, oh, check out this album, check it out. I remember the first albums, like my, my parents let me buy albums when I was a kid growing up in Germany. And the first album I bought was Chicago. I can't remember what the album was, but it was a Chicago album and a Beatles album. I think it was the White Album. Oh, wow. I mean, this is just me reaching up and grabbing an LP because I like the cover. Like, it's not like I had <laughs> any prescience about the excellence of this music. Right. And then my mother, I think, bought. Jack Michael Jackson's Thriller when I was like in early wow. and that was like a really big record for me I'm yeah. like whoa it was the sounds on that record that I really liked and then my big brother had a guitar and that was a big change for me too because I was like this thing that made music that I and I get that was probably if I had to say I was open to that because it didn't have anything to do with my parents so yeah I did like the guitar and I didn't know how it worked I put it on my lap with the strings facing up and then I played it with my thumb on just like one string at a time, just made up stuff and just got into the sound. I think I've always been more interested in sounds and like putting, and that's why I have an interest in engineering. I really got into producing mm-hmm. probably more early than I did really in composing. I've always been a, com- a producer or composers, a producer's composer rather than the other way around. A producer's composer yeah. instead of a composing producer? Yeah, like what I mean to say by that is I've always, my my interest in stuff comes for, first and foremost of creating interesting sounds and, and the methods by which you get an interesting sound. Okay. And composition is sort of a part of that and they all kind of blend together. But I mean, really what it is, is I'm always searching for the neat thing that I like the sound of, as opposed to, I'm going to sit down and write something on the piano and that's the, th- and then this is going to be that. And I'm going to write the notes down on the piece of paper so I can remember how to play it. And then I'll sit down and play the same thing again. I was like, no, I want to take my guitar and I want to delay pedal and re- lots of reverb. And then I'm going to record myself on one tape deck and then play that tape deck back and record myself playing along onto another tape deck and then switch the tapes out so I can do it again and like do so you, a really you, rudimentary kind of overdubbing. You weren't thinking, picking up that guitar, I can't wait to get a bunch, get a bass player, a drum guy, no. a singer, and start a band. You were like, okay, 
if I record this and then I re-record this and I mix them together, that's yeah. interesting. It's and it's that playing God thing that you sort of get into when you yeah. when you learn how to engineer and produce music because you're like, I can make these worlds with sound. It's probably the same thing that writers and directors have when they're like, look at what they can they can do. You write a piece of page describing mm-hmm. something. Well, I've invented a world. Yeah, these characters inhabit this world and they do things. Yeah, amazing things and it's terrible things, <laughs> but amazing things. And I have control. And I have complete control. Yeah, yeah you're right. There is something very godlike in that. I think um, that's why we do it as human beings. That's why we enjoy creativity because it is our opportunity to play God. We are the creators. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's that's amazing. But you did get involved in a band. Mm-hmm. When I was uh, in college studying fine art, I met where I had a friend of mine who was actually one of Andrew's friends, Trent. Uh, he and I... Uh, we're in class together and we ended up forming a band and that was the thing that sort of took me to the next three years of or six years rather of like moving to vancouver and then for to six Toronto. years you with that band yeah with that band doing wow. different things yeah. and what happened how come it uh because be on the six years huh what happened it was a lot of interpersonal stuff it was just like being a band in the bands like being a marriage and uh we had we were really young and it was a big lesson for me, and I've, I carry this with me all the time. We, when we were doing stuff in Edmonton, it was just in the basement. It was all about the love of the music and how much we enjoyed playing it. And if we got a chance to play out, like in a bar or something, it was even better. And then people would come and see us. But that's sort of what poisoned us in a way. It's like when we started bringing it out, once we went left the basement and went out there, we built in an, an expectation that people would come out in droves and that would be become we would become famous mm-hmm. and we tour the world and it was like all this stuff that we build up these big dreams and we lost progressively over the 60s we lost sight of the real reason why we were doing this and we stopped making music for that reason we started making music to try and reach those goals that we had in our heads those that that dream we, that's all we cared about we were like we want to be famous we want people to hear our music and be amazed and we want to tour the world and just be adored like it was just a total ego thing so we started like changing our sound and trying to fit into different molds that we completely invented on our own. Like, you yeah. know, and it was just, it was poison. And we were never happy with where we were. If we played a, a rehearsal, it wasn't just for the joy of it. It was to, it was with this festering kind of like, it was like a cancer that grows inside you where you go, I'm just here right now. But once I get here, once I break through this door, then I'll start enjoying this then it'll be amazing it's just constantly moving the goalpost you're just, just moving the goalpost ha- but yeah it's just, it's happy. a terrible way to do anything and it is absolutely anathema to your ability to sustain yourself in the long term uh, through all the disappointments and no's and people telling you that you're never going to make it and all the shit that we deal with as artists on a daily basis all the self-doubt all that stuff if you don't if you're not doing it because you love it more than anything you're going to fail you're going to get crushed by the weight of that expectation and that very unhealthy idea that your life will begin at some distant point in the future when you've achieved some some goal that you've set for yourself. I think that's something that every single artist relates to now or has so are you are you past that now? Oh yeah, am yeah? I ever. Sometimes that... I feel like I've got so I'm so removed from from being emotionally um bound up in what I'm doing because like I can have I can send something to a director and they'll say I don't know it's not really doing anything for me I'm like okay no problem let's move on 
And you don't have any problem with that? You don't nope. get insecure about it or anything? No, no, because it's the process. And I also know mm-hmm. it's not necessarily because I wrote a bad piece of music. Or I feel like everything I'm doing is inherently uh, has the potential to be better. So I'm like, of course, it's not good enough. Every once in a while, I still go back to that old way where it's I'll send someone something. And I'm just like, oh, my God, wait till they hear this. They're going to be so amazed. And then the reaction is lukewarm. And I'm like, what the fuck happened? Am I any good? Is this like, what am I crazy? Like, or I get really irritated and I'm like frustrated by their inability to understand that. Yeah, but that might just be the value. the recipient. That just might be the person. It is always. Well, it's, it's you know, and I've, it's there. I've had it's, that happen where I go like, yeah, it's good, you know, and it's like, yeah. what do you mean it's good? This is fucking fantastic. Well, but you don't want to say that because you don't want to sound arrogant. But at the same time, you're like, that's it. That's all I get. This is good. Yeah. It is your own ego that drives that. And if sure. you can get past that, that's a good thing because it's not healthy to to stay there too long well that that'll make you quit real fast that'll make you quit real because it's 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 tied to that same idea that if you're so wrapped up in the whole idea of it being i want people to recognize and acknowledge and tell me i'm great then you're doing it for the wrong reasons i mean everybody needs that every once in a while you you want a hug or you want someone to say you're awesome you need that Mm -hmm. but it can't be the reason that you're continuing to do things no and and you seem to have found a really nice space that you can exist where you're you're okay with what you create and yeah. you're okay with the feedback you get and yeah. it doesn't change how you do things but that doesn't mean that you're one of those people that it's my way or the highway there's two there's two sides to it so there's the one side that is able to take critical feedback and look at myself in a really or at least when I'm doing it right and I'm in that in that headspace I can look at my stuff really from the perspective of whoever I'm working with and saying, what is it that they're not getting? If I think this is amazing and they don't, it's not that they're an idiot. It's that they're seeing or hearing something that I'm not, or they're missing something. And oftentimes the answer is really simple, Mm -hmm. right? I'll like mute one thing or I'll add one tiny thing and they go, that's it. That's all I needed. Um, So there's that part. And then there's also the part where I feel that my job is, or what, what I've been hired for is to be an expert. And I know a lot of composers that start out just acquiesce completely to the director. And just like, whatever you want, I'll change anything. The director goes, I don't like that clarinet part right there. And they go, okay, I'll get rid of it without going, well, what is it about that, the emotional uh, currency of that sound? Or or the res- why does it not resonate with you? Uh, and being able to divide yourself and really look at things critically and go, well, the reason why this isn't working is because of a good reason that they've stated, or they're missing something that I can help them see as an expert within this field, hmm. right? So if you if someone comes to me and goes, oh, that doesn't work because of this, and I go, well, I hear what you're saying, but let me just point this one thing out. Have you thought about the scene in this context? Because I think what you're missing is the connection between this character's arc over here, and then in Act 2, we've got this thing happening. So what the music is actually trying to describe or do is create a glue between these two scenes. That's why I'm choosing to do this music here. And they go, oh, yeah. Okay, I get it now. And then, you know, you sometimes can't... it's as simple as that. They just need to understand what you're trying to do, your motives behind. Yeah. If I write a piece of music and no one gets it, that's that's not that's my failing. Like I have to do something to communicate my idea better. That back and forth, that kind of communication and collaboration where you're saying you're both driving towards uh, what you both feel is a worthy goal. I mean, that's that's what you're hopefully doing as an artist or as a creative team member. You're going, we both believe in this story. We both want to tell it the best way we can. So sometimes I'm going to disagree with you, the filmmaker, on how we tell the story because I think you're missing an opportunity 
to tell the story as best as it can be. It's not about my ego. It's not about I want my music here. I'm one of the first people to advocate for no music in a scene because I go, the acting's doing it for me. The scenography's doing it for me. The art direction's doing it for me. Everything's great. You wrote a beautiful scene. It was beautifully acted. You don't need music. You'll spoil it. If I ever try to write something for it, it'll be worse. So don't, no music here. But I think that that, that collaboration, I live for that stuff. My, so going back to what I was saying before, like looking for your purpose in the wrong places and going, oh, I want to be famous or I want to be this or that. My darkest moments have always been where I forgot that for a moment. I think, oh, this will be, this will be where I'll get the greatest value for all the work I put in. So for instance, like a premiere of something that I've worked on and it's at a big theater and we're going to get all the filmmakers are coming and all these people are coming. It's packed house. Everyone's reaction to the film is super good. And then they all get together for Q&A in the lobby and everything is just like the, the spirits are so high. Meanwhile, I'm in the back going, I've never been so fucking miserable. Like I just, I, really? some, because what I've done in those situations is I've hyped myself up to think this will be the most exciting and most rewarding experience of this whole process. Whoops. Because it's not. You've set yourself up for failure. If you think the end, it's about a goal, like it's about that final thing. Like you get to a destination and that's the best thing that happened to you. Mm -hmm. Like you think you go on a trip and just arriving at the end point is the best thing that's going to happen to you. No way. Yeah. It's going to be something along the road. Right. And I realized that that moment, there was one moment. It was actually at the Scarehouse premiere. Sorry, Gavin. Because <laughs> it was a great <laughs> movie. Moment. It, made was such, me miserable. it was such an amazing moment. We had five <laughs> sold out theaters for this show and everyone loved the film and feedback was great. But I'd hype myself up for this so much that when it, happened i was like well why am i feeling like this i was like i just wanted to go away i just wanted to be like why i've i've somehow screwed something up in a really big way that this is how i feel like it really kind of shook me because i'm like why so i kind of shook my head i'm like get over it stop being a baby go have a good time and interact with people but, but what, what was it that was making you feel that way just it was my because you okay felt so like, here's the okay, thing this is it this is the next this next is, thing to carry me to the next that's this plateau is the in my this career is the soul fuel yeah uh that when you discover the key that unlocks the door to the whole the soul of the film. So you're going, what is this film? What's the tone? What are the, what are the chords? And what's the melody of this thing that just expresses where you can take that piece and put it anywhere in the film and it goes, yes. And it, it starts to sing. It like has this like resonance where it's like two things vibrating in a, in a common frequency. And it's so harmonious. And when you get that, you're just like, this is amazing. And then you just, you go and you get this energy and everything rolls. And then things become easy. It's like suddenly you've applied lubricant to the whole assembly line. You're just like, okay, and I can write and be creative and do this and that. You unblocked it and you just run. And you're doing, it's like finding that, that holy grail. And those are the moments. That's where I get my juice. And if I think that anything else, the money, if there is any money in a project, <laughs> in a given project, or an money. award, or, 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 Anything other than human, the human interactive component, the collaboration, being creative with another person, or going deep into the, your own creativity, pushing past the boundary, and getting the reward of that feeling of going, I got it. Mm -hmm. This this makes sense now. I've had that experience with you. You played me a piece of music from something that you're working on, mm -hmm. and I have a reaction that is just like I just jump up and down practically because yeah. I'm I'm loving it so much, and you're going, ah, it's all right, you know. So oh, I've gotten to a point now where I'd rather have someone say something like, 
the positivity sandwich always works really nice. You say one nice thing, <laughs> then you put the critique in the center, and then you give a positive comment to close. Yeah, it's I'm, so it's so effective. And when people don't do it, I'm like, oh, that's you know, it's just it's um, inelegant. It's not an elegant way to to communicate as a person. You always want to so, oh man, I know what it must have taken. Like acknowledge some some of that effort. And to go, I really like this one thing about it, genuinely. And then to give, you know, maybe you should try looking at this or maybe you want to approach this differently. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this and this other thing, that was really amazing. I really like that. So you got a little bit to go on. You got a bit of fuel, but you've got something substantial. I'm really frustrated when people go, sounds great. I don't know what to tell you, man. I really love it. I'm like, really? That's it? Come on. Yeah, like, come I on, know. Be better. You know, and, and I'll be <laughs> honest, I, I, I almost feel like I have to apologize because you, you created the theme to this show, to this podcast. Yeah. And I was nervous because I knew how important this was to me mm-hmm. and I needed something that I knew exactly what I wanted, but I, I was finding it very difficult to describe to you what I wanted. Right. But you, I sent you a certain song that I wanted you, I was like, yeah, it's sort of like this. And then you came back with, with the theme and the theme that everyone hears at the top of the show and at the end, it's exactly what you sent me. More or less. Yeah. I mean, you, you change, you, you fine tune. It's like polished. You fine tune. Really, yeah. 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 But I didn't have any notes for you. And yeah. you were like, come on, really? Come on. But the fact is, I'm listening to it. I got chills, man. And I got tears. Because I was like, this is, forget what I wanted. This is so far beyond that. That it's, I'm like, it's in the stratosphere. I'm just like, I, I can't I can't believe it. I can't believe how how amazing a job you, you did. And then I feel bad feeling like I can't believe that. Because of course, it's Adrian. <laughs> he always does an amazing job. Everything I've ever heard you do, like I can hear your voice in it. I can hear your style, but it's always unique. That's you probably know, one of my favorite things to hear of all of any feedback that people give me. If they, if they tell me, A, they think that there's something I'm doing that feels like it's different mm-hmm. and that there's a consistent voice. Because I always feel oh like I'm God. floundering. I'm all over the map and nothing I'm doing. I just feel like, God, that's just exactly well, like this other thing. That's <laughs> the hardest part for any artist yeah. in any, any, any line is to find your voice. Mm-hmm. As an actor, as a writer, as a director, as a painter, poet, anything. It's to find your voice. That's what they always tell you. Comedians, you got to find your voice. Tell me if I'm wrong. I would think for musicians, it's harder than anybody. I'd, uh, okay, how do so you do I mean, that? How do I have you... a really weird thing about the word hard, and <laughs> I like I like the word challenge. But when you say hard, it means well, nothing. You know what's hard? Climbing Mount Everest is hard. Yeah, that's 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 legitimately hard. Finding your voice is easy if you get out of your own way and mm-hmm. accept that it's going to be a process that will take some time. Right. But if you just want to find your own voice and you just keep doing what you're doing. And keep looking in the mirror and making sure that you're not that you're satisfied with what you're doing, and you'll have no choice but to be yourself. This weird idea about having a voice is almost like people are. It's like people say that as like an empty catchphrase, and it's like I like. I think the idea of getting out of your own way is a much more important thing to to figure out. Don't worry about having your own voice. You're gonna have your own voice. Just get out of your way. Your Do you think way. you've done that? Get out of my own way. Yeah, you've gotten I out think, of your own I way. I think I've become. As years gone on, I've, I've become better at being relentlessly present, meaning that I am always checking myself for my own bullshit and trying to course correct. I've sometimes failed terribly at it. I'm fallible and do stupid things and have terrible mistakes. But I think the one thing that I do do is constantly check in and go, am I being like this? Am I doing this? Am I being too hard on myself? Not hard on myself enough? Am I like, you know, all the questions you need to ask yourself to sort of 
Keep I don't like that true. word hard. You should say I'm giving myself enough right. of a challenge. Yeah, that's right. Very good. Very good. See, <laughs> the student has become the master. Um, I don't think I'm great at getting out of my own way, but I'm good at noticing when I'm standing in my way. Let's put it that way. All right. So I'm at least what I can do is go, Adrian, you know, the reason why you're struggling with this is because you've invented this reason why it's hard and you're being, uh, you know, overly this or that. Right. And I can say that and I go, you know, and then maybe I can come up with a solution for that. It's an ego thing, right? Because you're no, like, you're freaked out. So sometimes the answer is simply work with someone else, collaborate. That's an easy way to get out of your own way. Because yeah. then someone else kind of takes you out of your own self and mm -hmm. you can kind of see things with more perspective or, yeah. Yeah. Do you have a favorite project or projects that you've worked on? Um, working on Haphead was a lot of fun because I just liked the project so much. And well, that well, that was cool because not only did you compose the score, you acted in it. I acted in it And you did too, fight yeah. choreography yeah. for it. <laughs> so that had to be neat because you're like... It was, it was fun to you get... Can, you can kick some ass. You know some uh, you I know can some pretend karate. to kick some ass, yeah. What, what, what do you know in... In um in the fighting world, what's the oh I trained in karate for for like fifteen years or something like that. And you're a black belt, second degree, third second degree, third degree, third degree, third degree yeah. black belt, third degree black. So you got to do fight choreography on Haphead. Yeah. And uh, how was that for you? Because you'd never done anything like that before. That was on a another film one set. where that was like that was a challenge where I was like I don't have anything to prove or lose. If everyone thinks I did a crappy job and I never get hired as a fight choreographer, well, they don't really care. Um. So I really just did it because I was like, it was something I've kind of always wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I was like, it would be fun to do that. Like, that's another thing I've kind of done over the years is if I want to learn how to do something, uh, I figure out ways to get people to hire me to do those things. Mm -hmm. and it's, it's crazy. And, uh, and I guess the only way I feel good about that, because I know I'm going to put like 100% into the effort of, of getting it right. I might fail because I'm not, I just don't have the, the chops to do it. So wait a minute, if you don't know how to do something. Yeah. You go out and you find people to hire you to do it. Yeah. That, that takes balls. That takes balls. That's it's like it's me all saying, from that same. That's all goes back to, to that plumber, one story. But, uh, uh, I'll tell you what, I'll come over and fix your toilet tomorrow. <laughs> you can pay me 150 bucks. If I was interested in that, I mean, yeah, that's the reason. I mean, it all No, I think it's admirable. I'm not making fun. It all I, comes I think back to that experience I had working with Donald and, and doing that terrible base session it's like they always say like it's a phoenix rising from the ashes what like people say oh i had this terrible experience i'm like there aren't any terrible experiences there are either experiences you're going to learn from or it's a waste of time exactly so yeah, with yeah. that one i was just like it was one of the worst moments in terms of hum being humiliated and feeling scared and feeling awful about myself of my entire life but it's been one of the most valuable things that's ever happened to me I've failed so many times. I failed and really spectacularly like that where people are like, Oh, I don't know, man. Like, do you know what you're doing? <laughs> you truly aren't afraid of failure. I'm terrified truly. of failure. What are well, you talking about? You can't about? be. Come on. It's because I had that experience with Donald where I got thrown and had no control over whether I could say yes or no. Yeah. And that's the other thing. Like, I guess maybe one great thing about my parents is they, although I kind of resented it in some ways because I think some things should be rightly quit. Uh, I never had that opportunity because mentally I just couldn't do it. It was like, it just, I, I don't have it they, in me to say I'm no longer participating in this thing that I've committed to. If I say yes to something, I'm going to see this thing through. You said near the beginning of this interview that there were three major changes in your life, three things oh, that God. changed you. You told me the one. This is, yeah. What's the other two? <laughs> Fuck, I shouldn't have said that. I've been this thinking about it. This is that moment when you're going to break, break, break your it. guest open and spill his guts all over the I've floor. I've been thinking and about it this whole time. Revel in it. Okay. Yeah. 
Okay, so the first big thing that changed my life was uh, I, had a, I had a girlfriend in college whom I loved very much. I was, we were deeply, deeply in love. Uh, and she was bipolar. And uh, so my experience with, like, in my own emotional life was, was like, um, I just, it was a very, and it's weird to think about that with me because I think I'm a very open, in touch kind of person now. But I was like closed down, like emotionally closed down, like totally. I had no tools to deal with that kind of stuff, you know, because I think my parents sort of from a post-war generation where their parents were very stoic and just kind of like, it's all about the work and, and sort of these like Catholic Protestant kind of values. And so my experience with my girlfriend was that we, she basically, it was, it's weird. It's like, it's almost like this thing I went through with Donald. It's like, she just took me and kind of smashed me open. And, um, spend a lot of time just mucking around in these, uh, in these very dark, uh, places of, mm -hmm. of self-examination and really looking at yourself and, and going, and it was very much like therapy. It was like going to therapy, except it was completely informal, uh, very dangerous, very kind of like, uh, cause I did, I was like, you're basically showing, like, it's like giving a, someone a gun and not really showing them, like taking the safety off and going and now we're going to go to the range, hmm. just shoot at the target. And um, she ended up basically deciding, because she's one of these people that's too smart for her own good, that she was going to delve headlong into her disease because she felt like it was telling her something. She was hearing something. It was, And I've spoken to other people who have bipolar, and they're like, yeah, it's an aspect of you that you feel is you. It's your personality. It's who you are. And you're basically told to shut that down or to like uh, manage it. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes you go, I don't want to do that. I want to look at what this is, and I want to go deep which is dangerous for someone who's bipolar because you can hurt yourself. Right. Um, so, but she really desperately wanted to feel like she had a partner in that. So while she was becoming less and less healthy and, and going to darker and darker places, I was following her and wow. not having the tools to see where the division was between myself as a person who didn't have that, um, who was mentally healthy or, <laughs> Uh, and her was that I basically just followed and, and believed in it until the point where when I decided that I could no longer be with her or do or really help her because I had lost all sight of myself. I didn't know how to deal with and being like relating to people really much in a way that was because I just I had no boundary. Uh, I had no boundaries anymore. Mm -hmm. It was like everything was just wide open, ga ga gaping wound. Uh, it, was, it was no concept of myself as a person anymore. So it was like very, it was like three years more, probably like many years of trying to piece myself back together after that. And, and to go, what is it? What am I about? What do I believe in? Like, where? So how did you do that? How did you piece yourself back together? after? Basically that? using the same techniques that undid me, but finally getting to the point where I believed that being the person I was, was valuable. That I, that I deserved to be the happy, comfortable well-adjusted person that I was. So is that what happened? And basically you went so deep, it became really dark and you... I believed just... that I was sick. Like she made me think that there was something wrong with me and that the fact that I thought I was well-adjusted and thought I was fine. And if you asked me how I was doing, I'd say, I'm doing great. You were, you were not addressing something. That was the basic tenet. So you look deeper. And I remember very clearly because the, the sort of visualization we would do is in order to go deeper and look at what was going on, you'd visualize going into rooms 
deep corridors and opening doors and what's there and talk about what you feel when you're in this room and what's behind this door and that kind of thing. And I remember getting to the end of what that was visually for me and it was an abyss. It was like me standing on a precipice in a darkened, like it was like an underground cavern-y type place, but I just could see this thing went on forever. And if I fell in, I'd never come back. Wow. And that's when I, stu- I stood back. I was just, I'm going, I can't, this isn't right. Because it wasn't that I felt there was something bad down there. There was just nothing. Yeah. It was the edge of my personality. It was the ed- the outer edges of who I was as a, as a being. And I I exhausted all potential of tricking myself into believing that I was, that I had this problem. I didn't have the problem. I was. So she was like convincing you that you were yeah. bipolar. Well, and... I believed it. I believed it because she, she was convinced that I was. And because I was, so readily, I was wow. such a willing subject. I wanted to believe. I wanted to, I loved her so much. Yeah. I just wanted to be there for her. And I thought, I didn't think that I didn't, it wasn't that consciously thought this is how I can help you. Just. I just went along with it. Like I went along. You just her. wanted to help her. Like it wasn't that I was helping her. It wasn't like okay. a benevolent thing. It was just, I, I love you. You know so much about this, and you're so, like she just seemed wise and knowing. And I was right. like, you obviously have something to teach me, which she did. She taught me, um, um like basically, you know, like <laughs> it's one of the big three. So there you go. That's amazing. Yeah. So and you came all out those of it. things that saw that heavy self examination, that desire to go deep, the desire to constantly challenge myself and to put myself into scary positions or to, to say, to, to be uncomfortable or to, to admit failure or to look stupid. Those are all born out of that experience of going, you can do all these terrifying things, emotionally terrifying, and you will be okay. When, when the, the experience with her ended, because yeah. what you're saying, you're telling me what you took from that experience yeah, yeah, yeah. and what you've learned from it. Yeah. Was that something that you realized... I. I don't know if the saying I'm thankful for the experience is the right way to put it, but but that you're you're like I, I've learned this from it, or did it take you many 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 years? It took me many to... years, not because I didn't have the capacity to understand what the fuck happened. I was broken, like so. Was, it was a lot of repairing. It was just putting myself, putting a person back together again. Who wow. am I? What do I believe? Now, how old were you? Uh, early twenties. Okay. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. I did not know that about you. So yeah, it's not, it's, it's, this, well, is, this would be like 11 o'clock at night after a couple of beers usually. And, and someone asks a point of question. I mean, it's 530 you know. in the afternoon. And yeah. And you know, it's not so much that I, that I tell these stories and feel uh, embarrassed about committing them to tape and having other people hear them. It's just that there are other people involved and I feel, you know, I'm just want to be, no, no, you, I want to be respectful of their, their part in that, you know, you're being nothing but respectful. The point I think. I, well, what I'm taking from it as a person who's never heard this story for you, known you for almost a decade mm-hmm. and never heard this story before is just it, it It really puts some insight into you and understanding how you work, um, not just mentally, but creatively. It makes a lot of sense what you're telling me. And it's yeah. just, it, all it sounds like is that you had a rough, I wouldn't even call it a bad, just a rough experience. Mm. And you took from it the best things that you can possibly take from it. You learned from it. You grew from it, which is exactly, well, like you said before, there are no uh, bad experiences. They're just yeah. ones that you either learn from or you don't. They were just yeah. a waste of time. Yeah. And from the sounds of it, you have had very few experiences that were a waste of time. You've learned so much. And it's it's only helped you in every aspect of your life completely. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. I, I don't know a lot of people that can it's look at an really experience weird. like it's that a, yeah. and say, fucking, she fucked me up. It's really weird, but 
if you ask me, do you consider yourself a lucky person? I say, absolutely. And if you want to, a, a good example of why I'm lucky, it's because I had experiences like that. Yeah. And people go, are you fucking crazy? That's, you call that lucky? And yeah, it was horrible. It was heartbreaking. And to watch someone go into the depths of madness like that and to basically lose someone, like that's, she died as far as I'm concerned. Like, I don't actually know if she's alive or dead or not because I've lost touch completely. But like when I saw where she ended up, like she was on the street and just not the person I knew at all. That's like watching someone die. It's worse in, uh, in some ways. So, I mean, how do you say that's lucky? But I mean, you know, it's lucky because I wouldn't have learned. I wouldn't have learned these things that I use that basically form who I am and that I use to, to be a happy person. What was number three? <laughs> We've covered number two. Number three was um, doing mushrooms. That affect you? How so? Absolutely. Um, it's, uh, it was my, the leader of the band that I was in and we were in, uh, uh, we were in Vancouver and this uh we, one time we went uh and we were just hang, we were hanging out in this park in Vancouver and we did mushrooms and sort of had this we it was just this extremely potent batch and uh like it, it was to the point where i no longer had reference points to what physical reality was anymore it's like you can talk about these things in a really kind of like uh, detached philosophical way like you know when you see a table the table's not really there it's made up of atoms and there's space between those atoms and blah 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 whatever or you can say you know everything is just a construct of your mind and you know we apply templates to the world and how we see it and it's just perception what the world really is we don't really actually know that all those things right going back to Plato and before but when you have that experience when it actually happens to you like I was we were walking along I mean strange shit happened too like this park had these trees that would um, give off this downy kind of stuff, fluff, like white fluff. Mm-hmm. So at one point we were walking across a bridge. And you have to think about this in storytelling terms. So we're walking across a bridge and it starts to snow in the middle of June. But it's this down coming down from the trees. <laughs> and we look across on the, and on, in our path at the end of the bridge is a dead crow splayed out on the ground with its wings completely open like right staring us right in the face and Trent just looked at me and goes we're going home right now and just like he blanched completely and was just like this is a sign obviously this like he just took the symbols and went that's it we're fucking dying we're gonna die we're going to fucking die <laughs> and I just sort of I, I sort of switched into this weird like mode that I get into where I'm just like really fascinated by death so I was like blah 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 kind of happily talking about death and stuff and he's like you have to shut the fuck up right now and he, at that point, he's walking along. He said, I was, I was walking along and I saw myself walking five feet in front of me. Like that, literally just watching myself go along. And there you were beside me talking about whatever and like two different people. At that point, I'm looking out and everything had just sort of detached itself from any meaning. Like sim- symbolically what things mean and our reference points, gone. So I'm looking at cars going by and I just see if, like a, it's like smears of color. Like as if you were to take paint. And smush them across a canvas. And I looked at it. And I was It was like a distant memory. Like things I knew 10,000 years ago. Of what that meant. And what that thing was. But like. And so I asked the question. I said. that That's a car. Right? <laughs> and he's like. Yes. And I'm like. And if I step in front of the car. That's a bad thing. And he goes. Yes. That's very bad. Please don't do that. But even as I said the words in front of the car. The words in front of didn't mean anything. Like as this. 
stuff, these things were coming out of my mouth. Like everything, like even as I think the words now, like those things lost meaning. It was just, it was just experience and detachment and bizarre. We got to like a crossing in the road and I knew that the signals in the sky, whatever sky was, were like telling me something. It was like green, red. I didn't know what it meant anymore. It was like, do I go? What does go mean? Do I like, it was like the miracle of miracles. We made it home. I didn't recognize our house. No idea where I was or what I was. It was like a state of not even understanding what you are as a, as a being and existence just is like a total chaos. I so, feel like I'm so high right now. <laughs> it's weird. It's like that happens too when you describe these things. So we got to like when Trent got home, he just sees like little marching skulls that are going into every, uh, every like Jesus. sink, like a sink. The, the marching amp- skulls? Little maybe? marching skulls going poison goes this way. Like get rid of the poison, get rid of the poison. Okay. And he's on the phone to 911. I put the phone down. I'm like, you don't want to be in an emergency hospital right now getting your stomach pumped while we're this high. Anyway, so we tried to like play music to get ourselves back to a, a good state. Uh, and eventually, like everything was just sort of going, and it was like horrifying and we we're just losing our minds. Finally, we got to a point where we were like started to calm out and there was this sort of moment, like about 20 minutes maybe, I actually had no idea how long it was, it could have been six hours, where we just sort of existed in this weird like state of calm and just, and nothingness. So it's very meditative. And then all of a sudden there was this incredible upwelling of energy that we felt and we got up and Trent, for some fucked up reason, I'll never know why he had these, he had like those, those flipboard papers, like big things with the holes on them for the thing. So we had those on, we were like ripping these things out and writing like as fast as we could write, we were writing these ideas that were coming to us, not ideas about like a story or thing. It was about how the universe worked and our place in it and like the functions of uh, like purpose in life and and how thing why there was like meaning to anything we we're just like and we come up with these like weird hieroglyphic sayings do you remember any of them oh, i wish wrote? i could there were some some of them got written into songs so they're like uh what was the one? Oh, one written to yourself as you know that was one of the things what was it one written to yourself as you know and at the point and even the next day we knew exactly what that meant it was like the way that we understood that we were both the authors of what our existence was, but we were also standing outside of it and part of an entirely different whole that was as much us as we were of it. And it was just like, it was not that we came up with an idea and go, this is a neat idea. It was that we felt it. We were like writing and one person had a pen and he'd go, and he would go, oh, oh, oh. And I'd go, "Uh," and he'd write the thing that I was thinking. (laughs) And it was, and we were like, what the fuck? And all of this would sound like an insane stupid crazy drug trip where you wake up and go man that was crazy we woke up the next day completely sober looked at what we'd written and go can you can you believe this happened and those the way that i think about the world now is still based a lot on what we discovered that night my whole mindset was changed really and now and just now that i'm telling you all these stories i realized that every single one of my breakthrough moments has been in a state of extraordinary stress and like where my mind basically gets kicked to shit and everything I thought I knew, I'd no longer know. And then you're going to go, okay, new, but that new makes, reality. <laughs> but that makes sense. You even said before earlier that, you yeah. know, you, whenever you're afraid or anything like that, it kicks you into overdrive. Yeah, I guess so. So it makes perfect sense. It, this sounds like this is just flat out the makeup of your being. I guess so. You know, stress and fear reveal stuff to you about not only yourself, but apparently the universe and everything around you. Yeah. So that's awesome because yeah. it doesn't do that for me. It produces 
uh, fear and ice cream. <laughs> fear and ice cream? You That's, mean ice cream so spontaneously ice cream just starts to appears. exist? I, I, I don't have it, and all of a sudden, there's ice cream. Come on and eat Damn, it. Come on. Be... It's, it's amazing I'm not 400 pounds. When I get stressed, <laughs> it's ice cream and pop and sugar, you know? Well, you know what? I mean, this, of course, I, it's not to say that I like get become like a superhuman when stress happens. Of course, I, and I've folded under stress too. And, I've, and it just means being really brutally honest with yourself. Yeah. Why am I being such a baby about this or whatever the, whatever the question is, right? That's phenomenal. Uh, you know what? We're going to have to do a second interview. <laughs> There's, I'll, do some, I'll do some more drugs in the interim. I'll do, yeah, could you do some more? <laughs> I'd, I'd like to, to know your experience with cocaine. I'll yeah. do a list and meth and, uh, and, and just anything with bleach. Anything bleach, with bleach. Good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're going to do that. We'll sit down again in a couple months and have another talk. What Beautiful. Think? Is that cool? Absolutely. This but, is great. Until then, thanks for talking to me. Thank you, man. And uh, this was a pleasure. Oh, my pleasure. Absolutely. All right. That's it. That's my conversation with Adrian Ellis. So glad to sit down and talk with him. Definitely having him back soon because I know he's got so many great stories that he didn't get to tell this time that are just so funny and insightful and interesting. Um, Coming up on Monday, great actress, great friend, woman I've had the pleasure of working with several times, Kelly Marie Murtha is going to be on the show. You want to check that out next Monday. Here's a clip. So you've moved over from acting to directing now, and how's that for you? How do you like that? talk about you you're directing stuff now um you know like you're an actor right um, um i need to talk to somebody can i can someone get me my agent i'm not you know, um this is it's just uh, a conversation it's not this, uh, this is you're not under oath like that i just you all right you want okay did you need to stop no i'm okay okay so all right all right well that's all right all right i'll just cut all this out all right okay. so here we go i'll just okay so, Kelly Marie, you're an, a great actor, and you moved over to directing. How how is that for you? I don't. Direct. Oh Jesus Christ! Okay, so that'll be next Monday, a week from today. Kelly Marie Murtha will be here talking to me. And again, thank you to Adrian Ellis for coming on the show and for everything he's done for this show. If you want to check out Adrian's stuff, and you do. Go to his website, adrianellescomposer.com. He's got all sorts of interesting articles there. He's got a blog called The Music Creative that he keeps up. He's got clips from all of his musical accomplishments and otherwise. It's just great. It's full, chock full of stuff for people that want to read more about him and just learn a little bit more about the entertainment world in general. So check that out. And also, we're going to go out on the theme for the show. As I said in the interview, Adrian did the theme for this show and I really want people to hear it without me talking over it so after I'm done talking I'm gonna play the theme in full without talking that'll be the last thing you hear because I love it and I cannot thank Adrian enough for doing that theme for me brilliant job by a brilliant man until next week remember life doesn't happen to you life happens through you thanks so much everybody take me out Adrian Ellis